This is Transforming Learning. In the TL Podcast, we share conversations with teachers about classroom strategies that elevate teaching and learning. If you hear a helpful idea, let us know by sharing the episode or leaving a review on iTunes. We are at CBD Consulting on social media. And don't hesitate to connect with us directly or browse our other resources at cbdconsulting.com slash elevateedu. From everyone here at Communications by Design, we hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. This is Zach. And this is Pete. And we're uh, going to talk to you today about an interview with Brian Pickard. Episode 48. Pete, why Brian Pickard? You started, you kind of initiated this conversation with him. Why him? Well, I think our listeners will find out Brian is a very thoughtful and interesting person and educator. But I actually met Brian over the summer. He was at our facility for a training. And Sarah Easter, our president here at Communications by Design, introduced me to Brian. And just immediately you could tell... This man has some experience and some thoughts to offer, and he mentioned that he wrote a book and that he's publishing a new book, and I thought, man, I have to I have to delve more into this guy. And so I bought his first book, Scattering Seed in Teaching. I read it. Um, you also bought it, Zach, and you read it, and yep. you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Great, great candidate for an interview. So Brian is a high school teacher, teaches foreign language at Rockford High School, as well as supporting a number of the programs at Cornerstone University in language education and teacher education. Um, So Pete, when we got to sit down with Brian, we had some conversations about his experiences, about his books, and about some of his upcoming projects. What what do we have in store for our listeners? Well, I think everybody's going to be wowed by some of Brian's experiences. I mean, this guy created his own exchange program. Right. Um, so he's sending students over to Europe and bringing students here. He has a rich background in agriculture from helping his grandfather on the farm growing up, which is something he writes about in his book, and his thoughts on the importance of establishing meaningful relationships with students is going to come through too, I think. And I think one of my most favorite parts of the entire exchange as we're talking with Brian is the constant insertion of parables, anecdotes, poems. He's he's got a rich background personally, and he shares that vigorously in the conversation. Agreed. Let's give you Brian Pickard. So, Brian, you are a very interesting teacher that we've been dying to talk to and have written an amazing book that Zach and I both read called Scattering Seed in Teaching, Walking with Christ in the Field of Learning and Education. And uh, we'd love to get into that book, what it was like writing a book while also teaching both at the high school level and the college level. But before we do any of that, we kind of want to hear some about uh, what made Brian Pickard who he is today. So would you take some time and talk about your background just a little bit for us? That's a pretty huge question. It's <laughs> 45 years old. Um, first of all, in regard to teaching, I didn't start out wanting to be a teacher. Uh, when I was in high school, I was shooting towards international business, and that's what I studied in college, international business and foreign languages. But I got into the business world, and I just couldn't find any satisfaction in that. When you're in your early 20s and you're experiencing that 
in what you thought was going to be a dream career, uh, you spend some time reflecting on that and praying about what, what am I supposed to do? What do I like doing? What are my skills? What are my passions? And I found out I love learning. I love studying. I love researching things. And I really love doing what we're doing right now, having conversations with people and, and sharing life together. And it became clear that, that something in education was it. So I went back and started studying um, education and language acquisition and ended up with a master's degree and started teaching. So Brian, I, I understand you've gotten some experiences, it sounds like maybe in the uh, you know, um, kind of private life before pre-teaching um, overseas. And yes. yeah, and so could you talk about where you've been kind of the impact that that's had on you and how that has kind of coalesced with your passion for education? Yeah, my sophomore year of high school, I had to start with a foreign language because, as I said before, I was looking at international business. And it's a bad idea to plan on doing international business without speaking another language. That's my opinion. Okay. Others have different opinions. I won't bore you with the decision-making process, but I ended up taking German. And during my sophomore year, I had a chance to go and spend three weeks living in Germany. And it was amazing. Um, I, I knew that people did things differently in different places, but until you go there, wherever there is, and experience it for yourself, you, you're, you're just telling stories about something you don't understand. And my summer, the summer of my junior year, I ended up organizing, organizing my first exchange trip by getting some friends from Germany who wanted to come here and found places for them to stay. And so, so Brian, sorry, not, not to, that's fine. To, to, to linger on this, but so you set up an exchange program with German students on your own, not through an organization? You just kind of... No, it's too expensive with an organization yeah. because you start paying overhead and, and insurance fees and, and for other people to get premiums for getting people in. And if I get organized for a few friends and they each pay me a little bit to organize it, then I'm the organization and, and it's cheaper for them. And my, my trip price goes down because yeah. they pay me. So... K keep going. Sorry, we, uh, no, we stopped fine. you there. But yeah, yeah. Um, keep going about. Uh, I I understand you have been to Austria as well. Yep, yep I spent yep. Um, I spent long academic periods studying there, and while I was there, I got to sing in the Salzburger Domchor, which Mozart used to direct when he was alive, um, <laughs> before he was banished from Salzburg and went to Vienna, where he oh had eventually died. And so I, I've just I, I've been given all these gifts of experiences that I didn't deserve, I didn't earn, uh, but I got to do them and. Um, when, when you get to sing with people of, of the caliber, semi-professional and professional singers, and, and you're just this driveway hack singer who sings in the shower and hopes no one's listening, uh, and you get to sing alongside of a professional tenor and, and meet friends that you have the rest of your life, it really changes your perspectives on things. I, I would love to ask a follow-up question to that degree, um, changing perspectives. And so without getting too deep into some of the things that you do, because we'll come, we'll come to that later, how do you articulate to your students the importance of seeing and understanding different perspectives? And you're, you're a language teacher, so a lot of yeah. your time is spent on culture as well. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that look like then as you're having those conversations with students? I try to explain to my students that, that I come at life from the perspective right now of a 45-year-old male Caucasian teacher in West Michigan. And I come to life with, with my set of background experiences, and therefore I see life through a certain set of lenses. And whereas I want to appreciate where you're coming from um, and, and receive you from where you're coming from, um, I can only see things from the vantage point that I have. And, and you can only see things from the vantage point that you have based upon your background. And so 
community is hugely important to me. Um, and, and you probably see it if you've read through my book. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you've been in my high school classes or my college classes, that's the very first thing. Um, learning is, e is an emotional thing, and it's based on relationship. If you can't trust me and I can't trust you, how can we move a step forward? And so a part of building that trust and building that relationship is understanding that we have different perspectives, respecting them, growing through them, and dialoguing about them. Mm -hmm. So do, do you encourage your students, would you encourage your students to, to travel overseas and things like that? Or how does that kind of enter into your your frame of mind um, because clearly that's been formative for you it has yeah and that's why back in 2000 uh, after I came back from from Germany I found an email from a teacher in Hamlin Germany which is this the town where the story of the Pied Piper of Hamlin came from the one who got rid of the rats there weren't really any rats but Disney made them that way <laughs> and I came back and, and found this email from a teacher in Germany in Hamlin and she wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing an exchange program and that's the very thing I'd been dreaming yeah, of. Yeah. And so she and I, through email and maybe two phone conversations, did a dry run that following summer with three students coming here mm -hmm. so that they could see if Grand Rapids, Rockford area was a town for them. I already knew that Hamlin was because I had been there. And in 2002, we did our maiden voyage where I took 23 students to Germany and had 19 from Germany come here that fall. And when you take high school students who have read Elie Weisel's Night, and they've read about Auschwitz, and they've read about the Holocaust, that, that, that's head learning. Yeah. And it's important because if you don't have the head learning, you know, how are you going to compare and contrast knowledge pieces? But you take kids to Sachsenhausen, a concentration camp outside of Berlin, and you take them through the barracks where they realized it wasn't, wasn't just Jewish people, but Christian people and Protestant people uh, of different varying sorts and, and homosexuals and, and communists. Anyone who didn't agree with Hitler's plan w was up for extinction. And, and you walk through a building and just let that soak in. And that moves from head knowledge down 18 inches to heart knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then you mix that up with living with a family for whom that's a part of their personal history and they have to deal with that reality, mm. we're back to perspectives. Yours starts to get deeper and broader and a little more comprehensive and maybe a little less narcissistic. Yeah. So, so can, you, can you talk a little bit more about that? What are some of the things that students say or do when they you know, emerge from that experience? What are some of the changes that you see in them? One of those students is the friend of, uh, of my son, and he was just at our house the other night, and, and he's become a friend of our family. And he, he keeps referencing Germany, 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 that, that that was a turning point in his life. He was outside of his family comfort zone. He was there with, with me, his teacher, and he was there with classmates, but he was in a family there in Germany and, and not with us all the time. And so when you're stripped of your comfort zone, when you're stripped of, of all of those crutches that you use to amble through life, you have to start thinking differently. You have to start asking questions about who am I and, and what do I hold to be true and what do I hold to be real? And w when that shift starts to happen and kids start to become adults, you don't have to have them say anything. You can see it in them. Mm. Suddenly it's real. I, I'm not here learning that language from those people over there, but, but we're, we're more connected. Well, well, congrats on the book, Brian. Uh, Thank you. 
I had a, a, a great time reading it. And I, I first, before we actually get into some of its contents, mm-hmm. I want to hear about, okay, you're busy. Okay, you're traveling. You've got Cornerstone and Rockford. How did you find time to write a book? I didn't. I'm a journaler. I've got my journal right here on the table. It's mm. one that you gave to me a few weeks <laughs> ago. Um, I always have journals going. I go back and reread them because I want to I remember what I learned. It's easy to forget what you've learned, which means you didn't really learn it. It's just back there on your hard drive somewhere yeah. using yeah. up space. And so one night, it was a few years ago. Um, it was an afternoon, actually. I left Rockford. I had some time before going to Cornerstone. And so I stopped at my grandma's house. She lives lived before she passed away about three miles from Cornerstone's campus. So I took a, a side route and visited her for a little while. And she was already in her 90s. Mm. Um, she died at 96. Mm. She lived a ripe mm-hmm. life. I mean, it was rich. As my grandmother always did, she would ask in rhubarb season, do you want some rhubarb? So we stood up, walked out of her living room. She had her paring knife and, and, and ambled over to the stairway going back down into the backyard. And I stood there and waited because I wanted to watch her go down the stairs, make sure she wasn't going to tumble. And I, excuse me, I looked over the 10 acres that my grandma and grandpa had planted with vegetables. So 10 acres doesn't sound like much, but think of just the tomato plants. 20,000 tomato plants every year. And and it was just the tomatoes. That wasn't the broccoli and the rhubarb and the kohlrabi and and everything else on the list. And I looked over that field and the now tattered greenhouses because they hadn't really been used. Mm. And this flood of memories started coming back of Mm. working in those greenhouses in the the middle and the end of winter with my grandpa Mm -hmm. and sitting on the back of this Kubota putting plants in and planting those tomatoes, sometimes upside down, mm-hmm. and then and harvesting them and, and hoeing them and watering. All these memories started flooding through my brain. And I started pulling out journals in my, in my mind and going back and, and pulling out the written journals and typing and typing and typing and realizing that there's more to this than I thought. Yeah. And I've got a group of friends, one whose name is Mark, and he's the one who spent I don't know how many hours going page after page after page through my my manuscript of this book and helping me ask questions about this meaning or that syntax or what I was trying to say here and he and a few other people independently of one another said uh, you might want to think about publishing this Mm. and when different people who have no reason to lie to you, mm-hmm. and they're not in, in corroboration with one another, they're sering, sending you the same message, you, you start to take it seriously. Yeah. Um, so I kept writing, I kept grabbing things out of my old notes and, and taking time maybe an hour a day after school at a coffee okay. shop in Rockford and, and just writing, uh, reading myself full, writing myself empty, and then moving on. Mm-hmm. So I started working on the official manuscript, looking for publishing companies and two people had said, why don't you check out Whitfenstock? They, they publish this type of stuff. Uh, but then two other people I know who had published and are respected authors in their areas, they said, be prepared for 10 to 12 rejection letters. It's normal. Don't let yourself get down with a bunch of no's. And so I'm preparing myself for the worst, that no one's going to want to do this. And that's fine anyway, because I don't want to self-publish. If it's publishable, it's publishable. If it's not, it's not. So I sent out the manuscript, uh, I think it was the first week of June that year. Um, My seniors had gone, and so I had an extra hour of the day free. 
and so I put it into their format for proposal and mid-July I received a note from Whippenstock saying they'd like to publish my book and I was beside myself with joy I just I couldn't believe it and I thought who am I that this is happening and yeah so so that's the trip and how did it fit into teaching I don't know I can't answer that question it just (laughs) did so Brian one of the things that that struck me with your book is this intense meaningful relationship you had with your grandfather yeah so could you talk a little bit about that relationship maybe if you're willing to tell a couple of the the stories from the book um, working on your grandpa's farm it it just Mm -hmm. really really neat stuff yeah grandpa was an old old school stoic Um, he was a post-depression generation guy who didn't waste anything and he really took umbrage to anyone who wanted to waste anything and along with that came the certain charm because he had a dry sense of humor and if you were paying attention you picked up on it if not you just thought he was grumpy Hmm. Um, so one example of that and I share it in the book was a day where I walked into grandpa's greenhouse actually I, I probably blasted into his greenhouse it was late winter my dad dropped me off on a Saturday and I ran in the house and said hi to grandma and she had her dishpan hands and gave me a hug and said grandpa's out in the greenhouse he's waiting for you so I shot down the stairs out the screen door probably left the house door open and ran into the greenhouse and grandpa looked at me and nodded and said we're we're planting seeds today and that's about the end of it and he came over and and he he showed me the trays he showed me the six-pack trays and said the dirt's over there in the furnace it's been warming overnight throw this in there throw that in there put the dirt in, put the seeds, water them, and put them in the back of the greenhouse. Always short directions. If you weren't listening and you didn't ask questions, you were probably going to screw it up. Mm. And so I did, and I think I was about 12. And 12-year-olds get bored. What do we have, about a 15 or 20-minute <laughs> attention span as adults? And you know, drop that in half for 12-year-olds. And I was bored after a few minutes. And I looked over, my grand, over to my grandfather, and he wasn't looking. And so I noticed a bag of dirt underneath the workbench where I was, and so I thought, hmm, I'll just grab some of that dirt. And I threw it in and popped in the seeds and watered it and took it to the back and looked and Grandpa never saw a thing. And I came back and and started working on the next tray. Well, I was wrong. Grandpa had seen it. And he came over and put the tray down in front of me and said, someone didn't plant this one right. Well, there was no thought on who did it because we were the only two in the greenhouse. And so with my tail between my legs, I, I walked to the back of the greenhouse full of shame and and dumped out the dirt and seeds on the compost pile out back and I'd wasted seeds I'd wasted dirt I'd wasted time and there was no benefit from it Mm. and grandpa taught things like that Um, maybe it's because he was a man of few words maybe it was wisdom maybe it was both but he, he taught all of his grandkids things there's a whole raft of us and I think without exception, all of us worked on that farm. Even my cousin from Kansas would come for mm-hmm. a week or two in the summer and, and work on the farm. Yeah. And th- there are a lot of funny stories. There are a lot of sad stories <laughs> that were also funny after the fact. Um, but we learned together and we worked together. And there were du- dirt ball fights and tomato fights and, yeah. and um, watermelon carvings out in the middle of the field because it was a hot day and Grandpa found one and sliced it open, gave us a break. and. I know it was an amazing, amazing time growing up working on that farm. Yeah. You know, what I love about that story, Brian, is your grandpa says someone didn't plant these right. 
And how many of us would have gone into the detail of how it wasn't right and it's your fault and you're wasting everybody's time, but none of that was needed because you had this relationship with your with your grandpa. Yeah, it's back with relationship. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. And I love that. And that's uh, it's a common th- theme throughout the book that you know mistakes are made or not, but this this idea of of, of judgment this isn't necessary. It's just this is what happened. This is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And it was just so refreshing to read stories like that and how impactful that must have been for you. It was. It was. Yeah. Um, None of us are any more important than anyone else, and so what business would I have putting myself on a, up on a pedestal to, to look down on a student or look down on anyone because it, it's just not right. You can't do that. God created all of us equal, and um, I'm just at a different point in my journey and a different stage uh, on the learning trajectory than my students, but um, I need to learn from their mistakes and yeah. let them learn from mine, and we can all grow together. Yeah. You were just articulating again relationship, and you mentioned earlier that learning is an emotional thing. You know, there's there's heart and there's head knowledge, but yeah. um, to really a- achieve the kind of learning that you want, even in a high school classroom, um, emotion's important. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions that comes up, especially as I'm reading through a lot of the ways you've articulated that in the book, mm-hmm. um, is how how do you find the time and space to create relationship or to foster and grow relationship? Um, how do you make sure or guarantee there's emotion involved in your students' learning in your classroom? What my job is is to make sure that through every aspect of the teaching space that I make available and that I construct, I'm intentionally thinking about community. I'm attention, intentionally thinking about how my students are in a space where we can be collaborating with one another in, in small and large and, and, and mixing groups so that there's never a day in my classroom after the first week where someone's sitting in a class and I say, what do you think of that? And, the, and, and someone says, well, what's that person's name? That, that would be a horrible thing for me to get a few weeks into school and not know every student's name and not have them know each other's names. Mm. So we're constantly working together. And maybe it's easier for me teaching a language than it would be for some other teachers. Or maybe that's an excuse that could be conveniently used. But we're learning together, and, and whether you're learning math, which is a language, or learning social science, which is a language, or learning physics, or, or music, or, or shop, or language, we're all using languages, and we're all trying to answer questions about how life works, and we're, we're just going after those questions from varying perspectives. And so if we work together in a community and we're collaborating with one another, then uh, Neurologically speaking, we're putting that limbic system in a really great spot, so we're not trying to fly or, or fight, but, but we're lowering that effective layer, and, and then learning becomes more accessible to us. Mm. If I'm feeling good about the people I'm around, or if I have a relationship with them and we can trust one another, then even if we disagree, we can disagree in an amiable way. And, and we can fight tooth and nail, but come out learning. and. If we're not establishing a relationship, if we're not building community, then all of that's for naught. Brian, one of the themes that came out for me in your book that really resonated with me is this idea of teaching who you are. You know, you make no bones about it in the book. You're you're a Christian. You bring that with you everywhere you go, and you're teaching <coughs> who you are, and that really resonated with me. As I was reading your book, I was also listening to a, a podcast of Adam Grant's, mm-hmm. the organizational psychologist, and he was talking about 
integrated work life and separated work life. And right. he's actually talking about the advantages and disadvantages to both. Sure. So I'd love to get your perspective. What do you think about, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm assuming you're a proponent of the integrated work life um, balance, but what do you think about those teachers that really do want to separate kind of the person they are away from school and the work that they're doing at school? How does mm -hmm. that hit you? I think I'd like to take a different tack. I would say that there's some different ways of looking at what you do professionally. I think it's Angela Duckworth who wrote in her book, The Grit, uh, sorry, Grit. Um, she, she used this illustration, and I don't think that she authored it, but she used it to make her point, and I'll use it here, that um, there, there was a, a square, probably in Europe, because I feel good about Europe, <laughs> and there were three bricklayers and I'm probably going to muck up the story. You can check in Angela Duckworth's book later to see how accurate I was, but I'll tell my version of it. There, there were three bricklayers, and they were all working on a project together. And so someone walked by and stopped and looked at one of the, the masons, one of the bricklayers, and, and asked, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, I'm, I'm laying bricks. I, I'm a mason. And that, that was the end of the conversation. And later in the day, and you notice these things always come in threes, and it's going to be the case here too, uh, a second person walked by and, and said to the other bricklayer, uh, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, I'm a bricklayer, and I'm laying bricks and, and stone here, and we're building a cathedral. Hmm, interesting. A little bit more than the first one. Mm -hmm. Another person came by later in the day and asked the third, what are you doing? And he said, oh, he said, well, I'm a mason, and, and I'm here, and we're building the house of God. Mm -hmm. So you can take that as a religious statement or you can take it for the metaphor that it is. And what we really have is we have three different levels of people here. And so I try to think of this um, for my students and for myself and, and for other people, anyone who's doing something in exchange for, for a living, that you, you can look at your work as a job, in which case you punch in and you punch out and you do the necessary work while you're there and, and then you receive a paycheck for that work for that time later. And that's good, that's noble. You can also punch in and punch out, and, and you can look at how can I work harder, how can I do my job better so that I can move up in the organizational structure, and that's called a profession, and, and that's also good. But I look at what I do differently, and this isn't a good, bad, or otherwise thing, it's just it's a different perspective. That's how we started out our podcast, mm -hmm. with perspective. And that is, my perspective is that this is a calling. And it's a calling, a vocation, you can use that word if you're more comfortable with it. But, but I'm called to this, and it's an outworking of who I am. And, and I can't take Brian divided by two, or Brian divided by two-thirds. I'm, I'm just Brian. And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, but I can't deny who I am because I'm at school or at home or somewhere. Uh, when I walk into the shopping mall and students run up and say, Mr. Pickard, well, I can't decide whether to put dad hat, Brian hat, husband hat, teacher hat on. It's just me. So, Brian, it's really, it, it's really profound hearing you articulate that, but it's also um, really important to consider then, so what about the student and how, um, you know, students often view school in a very narrow sense. Mm -hmm. And they come into the classroom because they have to come into the classroom. They're learning language because the state of Michigan says two years of language. And how can you build in students? How can you grow in students? Or how can you address the idea with students <coughs> of seeking vocation, seeking calling and, mm -hmm. and mission in the things they're doing, finding purpose, whether that's outside of school or even mm -hmm. in the day-to-day -day within the classroom? Sure. 
Well, one way is, is this. You asked earlier, how do you do this, this, and this, and still time find, find time for that? Well, I can, I can look at foreign language topically. I can look at it grammatically. I can look at it in, in a bunch of different ways. Or I can understand that what we're really about here is understanding that language is a vehicle and, and a message system through which we articulate life in every way, shape, and form. And if that's the case, if I only get to have two years with you, let's enjoy those two years. And the worst case scenario that I would love for you, if you were my student, would be that we spend two years together, getting to know each other, building relationship, building community, helping you come to a closer understanding of who you are, give you an opportunity to learn to think more deeply about important things. And in the mix of that, if you can come closer to understanding what your skills are, your natural skills, what your passions are, and then start to look out there ahead of you about what you can do with them, now we're talking vocation. And we've used a foreign language classroom as, as a place to do that, and, and learning becomes a catalyst for learning. If I can help them through that learning seek out their direction and teach them how to learn another language, if they continue with that one or choose another. And that's a pretty good baseline, I think. Brian, you've been very generous with your time today. I'm, I'm curious, what is the future hold for you? What, what's next for you? I'm, I'm fascinated with what you might be doing, <laughs> doing next. I am pretty fascinated by that too, and I'm not entirely sure. Um, one thing that I'm doing is uh, Michael Pasquale. He and I are working on a grant project this summer and we're looking at the concept of learning communities in a classroom and we're batting around the idea of learning societies, learning communities, and we're looking at how can we use the classroom as a space to build community for students. And we're in the middle of a situation where everyone who's really thinking about education and thinking about learning is asking questions about the validity of standardized testing and the validity of doing things that way that the way that we are and and there are companies that come up and help educators think about that from the outside like uh, like yours one of the questions that Mike and I are going after is how can we think through the concept of learning community from within the classroom and how can we form community in the classroom between the instructor and the students, and between students and students through different types of collaboration mm -hmm. to have the students working on real-world issues so that their learning isn't isolated from one class to the next or from one year to the next, or having students pose questions to their professors such as, how am I going to use this in the future, that it becomes self-evident. Yeah. So that, that's what our project is this summer. Um, and then he and I are also working on the beginnings of what could become a book. We're asking ourselves, what if we look at everything connected with learning and teaching through the lens of hospitality? Mm. And um, I'm going to speak w about a parable here. So regardless of your worldview, this is a pretty cool parable. Mm -hmm. um, after Jesus' resurrection, he was walking by a lake and saw the disciples out there. And they'd been out fishing all night and hadn't caught any fish. And, and he said, well, why don't you put your net in on the other side of the boat, on the right side of the boat, and they did, and caught this overwhelming load of fish. And then he said, why don't you come in and have breakfast with me? And, and they got to the spot. I think Jesus had a pretty cool sense of humor because he already had some fish on the fire. But he had provided the fish for them, and they caught the fish and brought it. And then he started dialoguing. And, and we're thinking of that maybe being an anchoring metaphor of how, if we were to think about our teaching that way, 
where we invite our students in to have breakfast with us. Mm. I teach a zero hour, so that's an attractive concept at 6.23 in the morning. Uh, breakfast together, and then I recognize that students are bringing something to this meal, this conversation, and I'm bringing something, and we're sitting out down over this metaphorical or actual meal talking, and, and, and hospitality mm-hmm. is the lens through teaching and learning. So that that's the next project, and, and we hope to be writing a book on that and starting on that soon. Excellent. Uh, so Brian, um, naturally, regardless of the future things you have going on, um, there are certainly a number of people who would love to know more about the things you have done and are doing presently. Sure. So knowing that you know our audience may want to try to follow up with you in some way, what's the best way that someone can reach out to you or communicate with you? Sure. My email address is easy. It's brian at pickard.com. Um, I have a Facebook author page. I have a LinkedIn page. And then also, if you go into your Google search engine and type pickard.com, it should take you to my web page. And I'd love to hear ideas. I've had a nice chance to be able to speak at a couple of schools and do some professional development. And I would love to have other opportunities to learn from other teaching staff um, through sharing with them through PD or maybe a roundtable discussion. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll, we'll post those in the show notes as well so that people can get the spelling and um, certainly can follow up in one of those ways or find your book on Amazon. Uh, it's also available on my website. And if you happen to be driving through Petoskey, Michigan, <laughs> McLean and Eakin has it on their shelf. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brian. We really appreciate talking with you today and certainly um, wish you the best in your ongoing projects as well in your future work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. So, Zach, we just heard from Brian. What'd you think? You mentioned before the interview that he's he's an interesting person, and you just you get something when you interact with him. You just kind of feel that, and and I think our listeners hear that in the conversation there. I certainly did. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me, Pete, and I feel this way even coming from my experiences in teaching, and I heard it in the things he was sharing. He talked about relationship, and as a teacher, the the importance of relationship with the students, but also then just the concept of relationship as the venue of instruction in Mm. a lot of ways. He mentioned his upcoming work hospitality, and I think that that really, it clips in well. But that piece about vocation, and this is what really gets me as I'm listening to Brian, he shares that, that for him, teaching was more than a career, more than even a profession. Right. And I have no doubt that his students feel that. And that, that was what was standing out to me as I was listening to him talk about that. Mm. You know, that vocation is something that is meaningful for his students. That was really cool. Yeah, love it. You know, for me, the power of perspective really stood out. You know, talking about his exchange program, his travels over to Europe, this idea that we're all better by valuing different perspectives. And I have to tell a little story here. So, so I read Brian's book and his Christian perspective comes through loud and clear throughout the book. And I have a complicated past with religion in general, and I was pretty anxious about talking to Brian, quite frankly, and oh my gosh, am I glad I did. And I think it really does speak to that power of perspective. He's got a different perspective than I would have, and I'm better for it now. You know, uh, 
how he teaches his class, how he goes about his life, I can learn from that. And I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't let those nerves get the best of me. Well, Pete, it was definitely a great conversation with Brian. And we hope you, our listeners, got as much out of it as we did being able to interview him. Thanks for listening to Transforming Learning by CBD. Continue the conversation with us by visiting cbdconsulting.com slash elevateedu, where you can contact our team to help brainstorm, plan, reflect, or troubleshoot your ideas and strategies. For more podcast episodes, visit anchor.fm slash cbdpodcast or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Help us get the word out by leaving a review and rating on your podcast app as well as sharing on your favorite social media platform. Tag at CBD Consulting and we'll be sure to respond.